So as we look to our lie this week, uh, we need to look first in a, at it in relation to the lie last week. So last week, Reverend Alex preached to us about the lie of Satan that teaches that you are not good enough. You are not good enough. And this is a lie that Satan often whispers to us in the quiet places, in the dark corners of our minds, making us doubt our worth, making us doubt our dignity. You're not good enough, he says to us. And this week's lie is the opposite. You are good enough. Whereas last week's is kind of whispered in the dark, this one is shouted from the rooftops. It's pervasive in our culture that says, you're strong, you're good, you're worth it, you're powerful, you are good enough. And both lies are tricky because they're both true in a sense. And we've got to unravel what does the truth of the gospel have to say that cuts through Satan's lies and twisting of these phrases because it's true that you are good enough for God's love you are beloved you are accepted he delights in you you have worth because you are made in his image but it's also true that you're not good enough to save yourself you're not good enough to earn God's love you're not good enough to earn eternal life on your own merits and overcome your sin and these two lies together are so interesting because I think this week's lie, you're good enough, is often presented as the solution to last week's. When people hear, I'm not good enough, when they doubt their self-worth, when they doubt their dignity, sometimes people will say, oh, you are good enough as the antidote, as a solution, as a redemption, or as a gospel that's given to the problem of people's uh, thinking that they're not good enough. The redemption narrative that's presented is, don't feel bad about yourself. Look how much you have to offer. Look what a good person you are. And with both of these lies, we kind of, if it's a gospel, we imagine that it's leading to a salvation in which heaven is just filled with good people. And we have to judge whether we think, I've got what it takes to get in there, or I don't know if I have what it takes. This gospel is false, and it's false and it's because it's far too small. It's far too selfish because it can't handle the evil of the world around me. It can't handle all the injustices of our world. It can't handle uh, the enormity of evil, but it only helps me to feel better about myself for a little while. And eventually it's going to fail there too. But to consider yourself good enough means that Jesus died for nothing. And in the words of my wife, if Jesus if you are good enough, then it just turns Jesus into a warm fuzzy self-actualization guru rather than savior and lord. So we need to ask where does this lie come from? What does it mean to be good? How can we, can we be good enough? So to ask these questions, I want to turn to one of history's greatest theologians, Calvin, who, with his tiger friend Hobbes, always helps us to ask the most penetrating questions of life. 
There is a strip in uh, Bill Watterson's excellent comic in which Calvin and Hobbes are sledding through the woods in winter. They're in this perilous, uh, dangerous sledding through trees, and they're asking these big questions while at the point of death. And Calvin confesses and says, I'm getting nervous for Christmas. And Hobbes says, you're worried you haven't been good enough? Calvin says, that's just the question. It's all relative. What's Santa's definition? How good do you have to be to qualify as good? I haven't killed anybody. That's good, right? I haven't committed any felonies. I didn't start any wars. Wouldn't you say that's pretty good? Wouldn't you say I should get a lot of presents? And Hobbes responds, but maybe good is more than the absence of bad. And Calvin says, see, that's what worries me. We tend to view God like this, like a divine Santa Claus, weighing our good deeds versus our bad deeds. And we ask, how does God, like Santa, define good? How good do you have to be to qualify as good? Is being good more than just the absence of doing bad things? When you think of yourself as a good person, generally, or you insist to someone else that they're a good person, generally, what are you measuring by? What's the standard you hold? The fact that you're not a murderer or a cannibal or fraud on your, uh, cheat on your taxes? We, we tend to think of our own goodness and our own righteousness subjectively relative to those around us. We say, at least I'm not that guy. At least I know that I'm better than her. I know that I'm not those people I see on the news that are doing such terrible things. We compare, we judge, we selectively observe the morality of others in order to make ourselves feel better. And here's the lie, because that's not how God measures goodness. That's not how he calls us righteous. He only measures by himself. There is only one who is good. So let's dig deeper into this. And I want to invite you to open your Bibles to our gospel lesson. The story of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, starting at verse 9. In your pew Bibles, it's 877. Page 877 in the black pew Bibles. Luke 18, starting at verse 9. This parable uh, is one that Jesus is telling and let's not miss this first verse of who he's telling this to. Verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So let's not miss the fact that Jesus is telling this parable to those who think that they are good enough, who consider themselves righteous. And what's the byproduct of that? They treat others with contempt. Because if your righteousness is built on comparison with those around you, the collateral damage of it is that you're going to treat other people with contempt. This is going to come out in subtle ways and more overt ways. But if righteousness is built on comparison, then it's going to affect how you treat other people. And how often is this us? So let's keep in mind, Jesus is speaking this parable to us. 
He talks about two men who go into the temple at the same time to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Pharisee is the holy man of the day. Tax collector is the evil man of the day. Tax collectors were seen as greedy and corrupt, lining their pockets by exploiting the people of Israel and being traitors to the people of Israel for the Romans. The Pharisee goes and places himself in a prominent position prays loudly with this self-affirming, congratulatory ode to his own righteousness. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, the extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. His goodness, his righteousness, for which he uh, presumptively thanks God for, is subjective. It's only relative to those around him. He's looking at the people in his life, comparing himself and saying, I am righteous. This is a righteousness that can only be found in comparing himself to others. Contrast this with the tax collector, the supposedly bad guy. He goes into the corner, does not lift his eyes to heaven, but beats his breast and says, God, Be merciful to me, a sinner. He humbly cries out for mercy because he's looking to God and God's holiness. And in seeing God and his holiness, he sees the gap between himself and God and he knows that he is in profound need of God's mercy. Jesus says that it was this man who went home justified. He was the one who was made right with God on that day, put back into right relationship with God. Because it's about recognizing our need for God's mercy, recognizing our own sin. That's the only way to receive the mercy that God wants to give to us. Jesus closes with kind of the moral, the point For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And the difference between exalting yourself and humbling yourself and then God switching those, flipping them, is where they are looking for their goodness. The Pharisee is looking to those around him. He's comparing himself with other people. The tax collector is only looking to God. He humbles himself because he's looking at God. And he knows that he is in need of mercy. He sees more clearly the reality of his situation. And I think it's important to note when we read this parable that the point is not that we must feel bad about our sin. We must, we, it's not that we should feel the weight of guilt and shame over our sin at all times. There will be points at which we feel the weight of our sin, when we feel sorrow and sometimes shame over what we've done and over our separation from God. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7 that that sorrow is meant to lead you to repentance and that repentance into joy. But God does not desire that we live in shame and sorrow and guilt at all times. It's about recognizing reality recognizing our true state, the sin that separates us from God and our salvation. And the tax collector knew that reality because he was looking to God, not to other people. And this is the lie, the work of Satan, 
because he would have us look anywhere else but to God. He would have us propping ourselves up on our own sense of self-righteousness through comparison with other people. He would love to point out to you all the bad things that your neighbors have done, all the bad things that you see on the news, and think, I'm better than that. In this lie, Satan twists our understanding of God, and he twists our understanding of sin. He makes us look at God and and works with our natural inclination to think and envision God as kind of a, a divine Santa Claus, weighing our deeds on a scale, creating a naughty list and a nice list. On a scale, our deeds, our good deeds go in, but then there might be counterbalanced by bad deeds. Oh, he helped an old lady across the street. That was really good. But then he might have fudged on his taxes. That was really bad. And this twisted idea of God that works on some idea of karma or scales of good deeds and bad deeds is not what Scripture tells us who God is. It's not anywhere close to how God reveals himself to us. To know God is to know that he is holy, holy, holy. He cannot abide any sin in his presence. The moment, if you're thinking about scales, the moment there is one drop of an evil deed on your scale, then you are instantly separated from God and his eternal love. There is no sin that can exist in his presence. He is holy. And Satan twists our idea of sin then, too. Because he wants us to focus on sin as these wicked acts, as these deeds that that make the papers, or these deeds that cause shame. And biblically, sin is not just the acts that we commit, but it's fundamentally about the enormity of that separation between us and God. It's not just our actions but it's the state that we are in. Our reading from Romans that Tammy read says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is not based on certain acts. This is based on the state of things and the reality of the situation of human nature. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. This is not something you can behave your way out of or you can train yourself over time to not sin. All have sinned. That's the reality. And sin is what separates us from God. Sin is that uncrossable chasm, the impassable barrier between us and God. It's not just about your actions. It's not just about your feelings of guilt or unworthiness. But it's the very real situation that humanity finds itself in before God, whether we're aware of it or not. Sinful acts... Our deeds are merely the outward expression of a sinful nature. And it creates a chasm between us, a barrier between us and God. And the only thing that can save us is God himself. Because you are not good enough. You cannot be good enough. But God is. So to combat the lie to come against it with the truth of God's word. We need to have our eyes fixed upon God, like the tax collector. 
not in comparison with other people, not looking uh, and weighing our deeds relative to other people's, but looking to God and the mercy that he holds out to you. Because it's in knowing God, knowing his holiness and his love and his mercy that we come to a greater awareness of our own need, of our own sin. This is the paradox of the Christian life that the more you grow in grace, the more you become aware of your need for it. It's often the oldest and holiest saints that we meet that are the most humble before God. That's not a mistake or an accident. So looking to God, I think, is the first step for us in combating this lie. Rather than looking to other people, rather than comparing ourselves, looking only to the only one who is good. Another gift that God has given us to combat this lie is confession. Confession is a gift that God has given to the church to reconcile us with God and to allow us to humble ourselves before him and to ask for mercy. Every week we come here and we confess our sins corporately in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. You can confess your sins daily and repent of them before the Lord. You can schedule a time to come and meet with one of your pastors to confess out loud to someone else who then can preach the gospel to you and say that you are reconciled to God because of his great mercy. Confession is a gift for us that God gives because when it's properly understood in the context of God's grace, the acknowledgement of our own sins and our own flaws can be a very freeing thing. It can even be a joyful thing because I know God's grace is for me. God's mercy is always available to me but it requires me to acknowledge my need for it, to repent, and to turn to him to receive it. We read uh, a portion of Psalm 51 as part of our, our readings. And I love Psalm 51. It's one of my, the ones I go back to time and again. We read it on Ash Wednesday. We will in a few weeks as we come to Ash Wednesday. But it's this prayer of confession but one that's also mixed with praise and it's mixed with an acknowledgement of God's mercy and it ends with joy and telling other people about God's mercy. The last uh, line that we read in our bulletins says that God desires truth in the inward parts. He desires truth in our souls. He desires that we bring ourselves to him, acknowledging reality and acknowledging him as the only one who gives mercy. This is what confession is, and it's a gift. And it's something that can bring so much freedom, so much joy, because in it, you're drawing near to Christ, your only hope, your only salvation, your only satisfaction. Those who know God's grace are more free to acknowledge their sin, more free to acknowledge their shortcomings and failings, even with joy, because that's how you move closer to Jesus. That's how you move deeper into the life of his grace. So we need to abandon the lie that you can be good enough. Abandon the idea, the, the naive notion that you can stand before the almighty God of the universe, 
the one before whom angels sing, before whom nations rise and fall, and consider yourself worthy on your own merits. This requires from us some surrender, some letting go of my own pride that would want to think myself worthy, that would want to think myself good enough. It requires laying that down, letting it go, that we might receive the mercy that is held out to us. Because to be a Christian means that you abandon all pretenses of your own righteousness, acknowledging your own sin while at the same time rejoicing that God has given you victory over your sins, that God has invited you into freedom from your sin and victory over death. Somehow, simultaneously, we know the weight of our sin and the grace that lifts that burden. And lastly, I think for us to combat the lie, we just need to know the gospel. We need to be preaching the gospel to ourselves over and over again because the gospel of grace is what brings us real hope. Hope is what Jesus offers to us when salvation has to come from him, not by anything that we can do. Hope has to wait on its salvation. Hope is sure of a promise that is made to us that it will be fulfilled. Hope is completely dependent on that promise being fulfilled by someone who's not me. Scripture says hope is an anchor for our souls because it depends entirely upon a God who is trustworthy and good and who will bring his promises to pass. That's what real hope is, and it only comes from the gospel of grace. The gospel of you're good enough is just empty optimism. And in the end, it's ironic that the gospel that proclaims you're good enough is not good enough. It will fail. It will not last. It's far too small to redeem the evil and injustice of this world. It will fail you. Brothers and sisters, choose the hope of God's mercy over empty optimism. Choose real love that transforms over platitudes that don't have any transforming power. God is not Santa Claus, weighing your deeds, making a naughty list and a nice list. He is holy, and he loves you, and he longs to show you his mercy. And speaking of Santa Claus, in our house, we don't really do Santa Claus for a variety of reasons I won't go into. But uh, a couple months ago, leading up to Christmas, our son Sam, who's five, was asking Stephanie, my wife, about Santa. You know, he hears about it from school and his teachers and TV shows. And so he was asking her, and I was overhearing this conversation. He said, if I'm good, does that mean I'll get gifts? Will I only get gifts if I am good? And Stephanie responded in the most beautiful way I could have ever imagined and could not have done myself. She said to him, no, you don't get gifts because you're good. You get gifts because you're loved. <laughs> and as I'm overhearing this and I'm just pondering uh, what a lucky man I am to have married such a brilliant wife uh, and a holy wife, I see my son 
And a slow smile starts to spread across his face as he realizes that he is loved. And that's enough. You are loved. And may that be enough. It's not about your goodness. You don't need to be good enough. The gospel of grace cuts through both lies. The one that says you are good enough and the one that says you are not good enough. It's the only truth that can overcome the lies. Because in Christ, we discover that at the same time, we are more sinful, more flawed than we ever could have feared. But we're also at the same time more beloved, more accepted, more received in Jesus Christ than we ever could have hoped. The truth of the gospel is that your goodness isn't the point. Other people's goodness isn't the point. It's about God's goodness given for you. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for this truth of the gospel, and I pray that by your spirit, your truth would set us free that you would break the chains that have bound us and have trapped us in these lies, and that you would help us find freedom and joy in your gospel and in the mercy that you so graciously give to us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.